Well, welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. Actually, welcome to this special episode where I take a look back at some of the highlights from the last year of interviews and discussions about performance, whether that's understanding it in depth, creating it, pursuing it, achieving it or sustaining it. I have to reflect that the podcast has become so much more than I could possibly have imagined. Our goal when we hatched the idea in mid-2017 and encouraged to do so by many of you was to simply add value. We've been absolutely humbled once again by the response to how much people are tuning in, uh, engaging, and it's just been brilliant to hear about what you're taking away from the discussions. Suffice to say, there are so many highlights and depth of insight that we could share, but what we've decided to do for this show is group some of the clips for you into five themes. First, how did people get started and what were their key insights on creating a breakthrough? Then a theme that came up in nearly every episode of how to work with others. And then we explore the essential perspective about thriving. So how do, how do we get good? And then we draw on some acumen about how to work with change. And lastly, we'll take a step back and think a big picture about some of the leadership and life perspectives that can enrich the journey. Okay, so let's dive in with some essential points of view about accelerating the journey. First, from performance psychologist Emily Tierno from episode five on creating opportunities. Then from psychologist David Fletcher from episode six on carving out experiences. Then from performance scientist Jamie Pringle in episode 19 on understanding the context of what, where and who you're working with. Then lastly, from elite ballerina, Lucy Balfour from episode 13 about her passion for pursuing her dreams. I think in my life there's a lot of uh, breaking through moments um, that happen because of that belief right. in meeting people and connecting and, and uh, Okay. And actually, my first internship at INSEP, when I met Jean Fournier, I, rem- I always remember I called him as out of the blue. I was like, I, I got his number some some way, and uh, I said, oh, I really want to come and do an internship at INSEP. So yeah, I was my, I was in my, it was my third year of, of studying psychology, and he said, yeah, you know, it's really difficult to become a sports psychologist. So um, I'm not sure. So it was it was not really keen. Okay. So he said, just go out there, just meet some people, and come back to me. Um, maybe just you know go to Canada, Montreal. There's lots of sports psychologists. Just yeah. go out in the world and then come back to me. I, I, straight away, I, I organized a trip for two months in Mont- Montreal. I met about ten people there that all knew Jean Fournier, and they all sent not all of them, but some of them sent him an email that they met me. So when I came back, it took me as an intern, and then it was sort of the start of my. That's interesting. So, right? Yes. Yeah, so I, I mean, over the years, mm. I've been contact with thousands of people, and mm. I, I'll just say, right, go and do something. You know, a big part of my career development was uh, an internship at British Swimming at the same time. So I was lucky to have that academic development, but also have that experience of working alongside coaches. So I was in between um, Loughborough for my studies, and then I was based down at Bath University with their youth programme. So I was lucky that uh, British Swimming uh, facilitated that, and then the coach at the time, Amanda Booth, really gave me free reign in terms of psychological preparation of their youth swimmers. Mm. So I really... um, 
yeah, learned my trade, I guess, in terms yeah. of standing up in front of an audience, working one to one with athletes, and uh, yeah, made some mistakes along the way. But you know, you can't beat that experience at an early age. So you know, for budding sports scientists, it's it's the age-old thing. You've got to try and get that experience, and it's difficult to get the experience without already having it. But if you can get anything in, in terms of just working with a local club, particularly a sport that you know well, hmm. I started in swimming and I, I still do focus in swimming because that's my main passion. Yeah. Uh, but that's certainly how I got that initial start. Now, what is it like, Jamie, when you, when you first work with uh, an elite athlete or a household name? And uh, what are the challenges? What's going through your head? Well, I think the first thing you think is, what can I do? What can I give? What benefit can I bring? What's my role that I can add? But actually, I think what you soon realise, or maybe, maybe you don't soon realise, maybe it takes a bit of time, a bit of hindsight, is actually that environment you're stepping into, that we talked about this before, the idea of the filter, the noise. And if you bring in noise, you're not bringing clarity. And so I think, for me, we're, you know, when we're, what we're trying to go with here is trying to figure out your role, trying to figure out the role that you can offer. Um, but you come with content in your mind. And actually, it's more about understanding what's out there mm. and, the, and how that um, environment works and how that culture works and how the people are in it are working. Um, I'm still going to go always to the end point. And actually, you have to get to into that environment and hear and see and feel and smell and experience all those kind of things that go on that daily basis not just the performance that you see but the training environment you know the biggest thing i think a young practitioner can do is not learn more but actually learn what where where that's going to be applied you know and actually get down if you're getting down to the side of the pool in the training session getting in the pool in the training session you know the kind of the classic thing of actually getting an empathy for the people you're working with did you have a backup plan so you've gone through a sort of a, a dark yeah. school, yes. which is which is schooling you for that career. Mm. Did you have a, a, a plan B? Well, I think I think the fact that I still had my studies behind me, so I finished high school, mm. and I knew I had that. Um, not not necessarily a plan B, because maybe I think part of me thought that I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Okay. I just had this kind right. of like something in me that was like I I know. I know I've got a message, I know I've got something that needs to, to be out there. And so, maybe that's it. That focus, I don't know, but I mean, I'm sure had things have worked out differently, I, I would have coped fine and dealt with. Right, I see. So actually, having a backup plan fully formed and in the back pocket might, might have made you revert to it in some ways. So Possibly. You, actually, you were so focused on making it happen that it, you did. Yeah, right. yeah. And it was that weird thing about just kind of Sometimes just trusting or just that intuition of being like, I'm in a way putting all the eggs in, in one basket. Mm. Um, but then being realistic and knowing that, you know, you can turn up to an audition where there's 200 people and it might be the fact that your physique's not right or for, for, for what they want or you're, you're this height or you're that. And, and it can just, you can be cut straight away and it's like, okay. it's learning, yeah, to be, to be resilient. In many ways, these perspectives remind me of something Ralph Waldo Emerson said. Once you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen. And so the next set of clips is all about working with other people. I mean, who doesn't work with others? And if you're not really investing in developing your ability to collaborate, then you're probably robbing yourself of your own performance. 
First up is Army Captain Adam Conlon from episode 15 on working as the first response team in disaster zones. And then from physiologist turned technical salesperson Harvey Galvin from episode 20 about getting out of your own narrative and listening to what other people need. Then psychologist and conversational analyst Liz Stokoe from episode 12 about conflict and how to negotiate with people. And then we hear from Olympic gold medal winning coach Tony Minicello from episode 10 on how critical it is to work to adding value. And then from former international netball player and leadership consultant Rosie Mays from episode 22 about the necessity of individualising relationships. Those relationships were going to help us. Yeah, that's interesting. Because we don't have money as a charity. Mm. We didn't have money as a charity. It's, it's, it's all going to be on relationships. So what would be your top tips then? You've got to hit the ground. Yeah. You, you're, you're a foreign object. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you don't necessarily know what the personalities. So I mean, I'm sure you would have perhaps got a sense of maybe the culture. Mm-hmm. What are your top tips of kind of making that connection and that initial rapport? I think the best thing, and it's something that we're obviously moving away from as a, like a, a human social species, is you've got to get face to face with people. And we would initially we were like trying to send out emails of like, can you help us? We've got all this aid, but we who's the right person to? Can you could you maybe put it on the tanker that's going out to da da and just getting like literally yeah. zero reply? And I think the biggest thing we did was get face to face with people, um, try and meet as many people as possible. But the first thing is just listen to people. It's like mm. we were not the person there to go and say, save people, or we just went in there and we just like basically asking ways of, you know, what are you having issues with? What are you having challenges with? You know, is there any little gap that we can help you out with? And it's listening, like, it's unbelievable how many people don't really listen to each other. Genuinely, like, and we spent days just going around in circles. And sometimes you feel like, how are we, we're not getting anywhere. But Getting face-to-face people gives you the chance to build rapport and it be, because it allows you to be like allows you to build those sort of empathy levels as well. Yeah. You can only do that face-to-face. You're picking up social cues. You're picking up... And then you start to build that very, very quickly, that, that level of trust with people because we were a brand new charity that they'd never heard of. Yeah. And so like, they would be like, well, who are these guys? And who they, if we had rocked up thinking, guys, we're okay, we're, we're going to help you out, they would have been like... Looking back, um, what are the kind of the key messages that you've got to share with with people in a similar scenario, but also just about how how effective you you potentially can be in in life? Um, Getting out of your own head and actually thinking, what is that person thinking? And the biggest sales thing I learned is asking them. We seem to place this huge thing on I should know, or, or maybe we place like a, I've done a really good job because I've guessed or figured out what you, what you need Yeah. rather than, you know, uh, I read one book and it was, I, I can make you a mind reader. Ask the question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Is that really it? Uh, why? It, it's stuff that we just don't really, because we, we, we come to a solution immediately when someone says something because it builds us up. When reality, you've got to be a sponge and just let everything soak into you. Mm. And when someone asks you the question, what would you do? 
perf- you've got them. You, that's when you talk and you you bring the solution. Hmm. But you know, I, I'm actually not saying that there's anything wrong with having a good argument. You know, argument. We can't. Everything isn't. Humans aren't designed to always be happy. Conversations aren't always designed to be smooth. Conflict is good. If people didn't challenge others, then we wouldn't ever learn anything new. And of course, it's equally problematic to be in a situation where you feel like you can't challenge somebody. Yeah. Um, that's very dangerous. Yeah. So with those mediators, I was really interested in the fact that many of the initial inquiry calls between a member of the public, he doesn't know what mediation is and probably doesn't want it because, let's face it, if we're in a dispute, we don't want to sit down and talk with somebody who is not on anybody's side. You want the neighbour to be arrested, evicted, you know, killed, whatever. <laughs> you want, they want them gone. But if mediators then say, but would you be willing to just come and have a chat? And if they ask people if they're willing, rather than are they interested in mediation, or another verb, would they like to mediate, um, willing gets uptake. What would be your top tip of people communicating with you? So you're talking about communicating there with Jess, but you're dealing with performance directors, you're dealing with ologists, you're dealing with agents. When they're they're working with you, what would be your top tip to them? I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking for someone, something that's going to add value to the outcome. And the outcome isn't me. The outcome isn't you. The outcome is the athlete in that performance. Because an athlete will... That success has many fathers and failures and orphan. So they'll lose alone. But when they win, we'll all go, oh, it was my genius coaching. It was the, this sort of thing. So I need somebody who understands that and will be around on the bad days and around on the good days. But I want you to bring something of value, preferably tried and tested to a certain extent, but something that's going to add value to this individual so they continue to, to move on. Because let's be honest, everybody wants to win. And if they win, I win in retrospect from that. So... That's what I want. I want something that's tried and tested, is balanced, that I can add easily without having to throw the baby out with the bathwater and really adjust things. Mm. You know, I go back to a really basic principle I believe in in, in terms of performance enhancement, enhancement is individualization. You know, that's what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. And the relational part of that um, is, is going to be critical. You know, yeah. and when we extract that into the business world, I believe the future of good leadership, good business in the future will be about relationships, about how we get that kind of knowing in our business world, the way the athlete and the coach and the scientists mm. have that understanding of their unique role in this performance enhancement. Yeah. Mm. So critical is that perspective of thinking beyond ourselves and truly committing to a collective purpose. As Helen Keller said, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. So next up is a set of clips about thriving. Perspectives that can help us be more effective when the pressure comes on and when performance is actually delivered. First up is from Head of Endurance, Barry Fudge, from episode 16 on Keeping Your Nerve. Then again from psychologist Emily Tierno from episode 5 on how important self-awareness is to understanding how you'll respond in that moment. 
And then again from Rosie Mays from episode 22 about the application of stress adaptation to failing fast and learning in business. Then from ultra endurance runner Joe Meek from episode 11 about anticipating the problems ahead of time and having a pre-planned response she can go to. Then lastly, from Army Captain Adam Conlon from episode 15 on practicing performance under pressure. So it's a bizarre, bizarre experience, the championship environment. And I think practitioners who don't necessarily go there, particularly scientists, that's a whole different world that if they understand what goes on there, they would be so much better at their jobs. But I think think that's a big part of being in the environment that you've got to be able to go, I'm not going to be the one that stresses you out. I'm going to be the one that provides calm okay. and focus and clarity about what you're trying to do. So when you're talking about managing others, yeah. obviously you're in a leadership role, whether it's specifically head of endurance yeah. or specifically team leader or, yeah. or actually demonstrating leaderful qualities in that, yeah. that environment. Is that- yeah, you've you got... And I think um, the thing is about athletes in that environment, they're very vulnerable. Mm. So they're looking for... It's a bit like you know if you're on an aeroplane and it starts to get bumpy... First thing you do is look at the air hostess and go, whoa, are they panicking? I think it's a bit like that with athletes. It's they, They're looking at the leaders or the team yeah. coaches, whoever, to say, are they panicking? Are they worried about stuff? Any sign of stress or whatever, I think it, it really exposes them. So I think it's hugely, hugely important that the way... Uh, it, this is one thing I've learned, actually, about leadership, actually. Every, everything you do, your body language... The things that you say, the people you speak to, the people you don't speak to has a big impact because mm. people are looking at you. And particularly in that environment with athletes, they're, they're looking to see, is the head coach a bit stressed? Leadership is so important to, to be demonstrating all the time. We're, we're all right, we're cool. This is yeah. good. So one key objective for me was to make sure there's no psychological bias affecting their decision-making process. Um, so really removing anything that would um, yeah, um, become noise in the way they're going to make decisions. And how do you do that? How do you go about that? Um, I guess it's really about making sure you really you help them to... The first thing is how to know themselves as much as possible. So knowing um, what's going to... I guess in the race or in a regatta, what's going to trigger really strong emotions okay. uh, and how they're going to react in those situations to then make sure that in the moment they're going to have this really high level of awareness to be able either to regulate the, their emotions or to focus on what's really important in the moment rather than being caught up in the, in the noise. And, and I, don't know, I don't think that's specific to sailing, but if we're aiming for sustainable performance, really, it's really important to support them to just really develop as people. So, so yeah, helping them to clarify who they are, why, why they're doing what they're doing, what gets them out of bed in the morning. Mm. Um, almost learn, even when they, when they don't achieve their goals, when they fail, how, they, how much they can see that as a learning opportunity and, and de- to develop resilience. I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that as a scientist, you have a sense of what is possible and how to get there. And then if you take that into business, and you want to innovate and be creative, you might not even know what might be possible. Because mm. there isn't a physical or yes. a physiological ceiling, I yeah. guess. But are there principles that will help you guide that? Well, I, I guess the, yeah, I guess the principles in business would be or in innovation is is fail fast, isn't it? It is actually have a go. Don't be scared to have a go. Because as you fail, you'll learn and you can go again. Which 
if you go back to our earlier conversation about the failing fast might be pain for some people how do we mm. how do we not experience failure as yeah. pain because if we've experienced failure as pain we don't want to go there but if you're in a creative environment that says if we get it wrong we're learning from it and that's the positive yeah and the ability to fail fast to be able to go again so uh, I don't know whether you can fail fast in, in physiology nowadays because of the consequence of failure. I think the consequence in business of failure is the shaming of it, the I, I am a failure. So creating the environment to say failure is okay and failure actually is needed yeah. if we are to push on beyond what we've ever done before. I feel fairly confident that my mental resilience is strong enough but you never know when you're feeling really sick or your stomach hurts or your feet hurt you, you never know how you're going to react but um if I try and think of all the bad things that could happen and try and reason through them at least I know I'm halfway there to having a reaction already pre-planned for when I'm on the course whether it's I'll oh, get on with it stop whinging or well if you feel sick just be sick and then you might feel better you know there could be something that you can do that when you're tired, you don't think of, but if you've kind of thought of those uh, situations prior to the run, then at least you know you've got a pre-planned response. There is a pressure to get it right um, because ultimately you are thinking that the biggest pressure of all is if we don't get this right, people could get hurt or they could get killed. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you think a lot about how you can get better because you need to. Um especially as an officer, the pressure to do your job properly and not mess up just so that someone doesn't get hurt because you would have to live with that for the rest of your life. Um, and also, ultimately, you don't want to be killed yourself. Yeah. But it, you always have that. I must admit, there, there was a lot of tense times in training as you try and figure out the best way to work as a team. Mm. Um, you've also got this pressure of um, you're going to be taking over from a battle group that have been there already. And so they may have done some really hard work and you don't want to lose the how far they've taken things, okay. etc. So a lot of a, a lot more pressure than I, I probably thought, because I think people don't see the military getting it wrong, as in wrong in training. They don't see that bit, how much we practice and rehearse yeah. and rehearse and rehearse again. But there's, a, there's a great saying as... Um, of um, no plan survives contact. Yeah. So we, you know, we, uh, in other words, contact with the enemy, we plan and plan and plan, rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, just to be ready for, we can be ready when things go chaotic. Um, mm. I think that's one of the, the biggest things of military training. It's allowing you to be relaxed in chaos. That takes a long time to get used to. Uh, further in that interview, Adam quotes the Russian military general Alexander Suvorov. Hard training gives easy combat. Easy training gives hard combat. And that came up time and time again throughout the year about preparing to perform requires people to understand and simulate performance conditions to achieve at your optimum. So next up is a series of clips about change. First up from social entrepreneur Tim Harper from episode 24 from switching a thinking away from just simply more is better. 
and then from one of the most popular episodes with aspiring astronaut Tess Morris Patterson in episode 21 on how she decided on creating change toward a career in space exploration. I then share a perspective from episode 22 about the similarity between physical and mental effort preceding the adaptive response to improve. And then lastly, from physiologist and infographic designer, Jan Lemieux, on challenging yourself. It's about building capacity. Um, and it's about, it's, it's about having the, 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 I guess, the strength of mind to say, or the, the lack of ego to say, we don't have the answers. What we do have is we have a, a group of experts um, and we have an approach and we can work in collaboration to find out what those solutions might be. Mm. Um, I always say that our approach in the UK to, to sports development is always resource stacking. Get the best resources and stack them on top of each other and then we'll create something great at the end of it. And it's very similar to what we did in the Second World War We had when we went off in, on bombing missions. Um, and our bombers kept on getting shot down. Obviously, that's not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was, there was kind of two, there's a solution brought about by the Americans. They say, well, let's, let's just cover the plane with armor um, and let's put more guns on it to shoot these fighter jets. This sounds quite familiar to a lot of political <laughs> commentary. <right? laughs> well, I, think it's, I think it's pretty similar to the thing, but it's the idea of this resource stacking. We'll just we'll put loads of armor on it, we'll put guns on it, we'll shoot the fighter jets down, we'll be able to do the do the bombing mission and come home and everyone will be safe. Um, that made it incredibly expensive to make these planes in yeah. terms of the material. You then had four people on that plane um, and all this weight um, made the planes incredibly slow. So more of them got shot down. The American solution again, um, more armor, more guns. And it, it went on this cycle until someone came along and said, no, 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 strip everything away. I don't want any guns in it. I don't want any armor on it. Make out of wood. Um, and the plane was so light that it could outrun the fighters, complete the missions, and it had a far higher success rate than any of these, these armoured planes. And I think that, for me, is the, the perfect analogy for what we're trying to do, is that instead of putting more armour on, instead of putting more resources and sort of into these environments, we're trying to look at what works, where we can kind of find a workaround and come at it from a completely different perspective. Okay, so... I realized when I was doing my head of performance support role, um, ultimately that I wasn't happy. And that's a very difficult thing to admit. Um, And I think it creeps up on you that you don't necessarily notice it either. Um, And when I'm talking happy, like anyone that knows me knows that I'm pretty much one of the happiest people you'll meet. So when I'm saying unhappy, you know, I wasn't... uh, I wasn't struggling at all, but I wasn't my usual self of just, you know, chirpy all the time, motivated, you know, all of those, all of those things that come alongside that. I think I just felt a little bit dented uh, and I didn't know why really. So I had a conversation with my wife and said, she actually pointed out to me, she said, um, you know, you just seem a bit different, you know, that there are aspects of your role. I think that you're not enjoying as much as, as you have done in the past. Um, you know, you're not thriving on it. You're not talking about it all the time and you're not really excited to, to go to work every day. So I kind of went from there, sort of went down a path of really understanding, like starting from scratch in terms of understanding who I am and what I'm about. And, uh, 
I think when you are someone who your identity lies within sport and many for many people and for many athletes and people associated with sport, that's their bread and butter. You know, when your identity is entirely intertwined with sport, it's incredibly difficult to try and untie that to see, okay, well, what are the foundations of who I am and what I'm about? And then how do I build on those to actually see what it is that I would do as an alternative? So I basically opened up any door that I possibly could do and just explored the possibility of doing, if I could do anything again, what would it be? So pretend I'm 15 years old and that age isn't a factor, that money isn't a factor, uh, that relationships uh, and I have a supportive family, luckily, um, you know, pretend that nothing is a factor at all. And the role that I came out with um, was that I would love to be an astronaut. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talked about f- uh, learning and flow, total immersion. That was his big concept about being absolutely in the zone. But either side of that was a requirement to not only have immersion, he talked about incubation, so time off task, so that then you had a further inspiration. So immersion, incubation, inspiration really raising the prominence of recovery Mm. for your ability to to realize and learn and adapt further. I would say that uh, for me, it's very simple. Uh, The the main main lesson was that you have to be fair with people because you you never know what will happen and, uh, and you have to create a good relationship with people. This is the basis for me. And the other thing is that to work a lot uh, and to keep challenging yourself. So the only way to succeed, I think, is to, to create a good network, to, to keep working hard because you never know what will happen and when you will get the opportunity, but you will have to be ready when it will happen. And, uh, and the best way to do that is to keep challenging yourself. That collection of clips makes me think of something essayist Anna Nin wrote. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. We, we inherently have a drive to do what we're good at, but if we want to progress, we must step into the new. So last up is a set of thoughts about perspective, philosophy and leadership to help us see the bigger picture. First, from Harvey Galvin, from episode 20, about reassessing what it is to have a good day. Then from World Ironman champion Chrissy Wellington from episode 18, about turning her focus from her victories to championing a change in society. Then Barry Fudge from episode 16 on finding purpose and passion in what we do. And lastly, from legendary coach Vern Gambetta from episode 4 on getting better at getting better. And when you're having a tough time, mm. uh, it's very easy to spiral into thoughts that are not helpful. And right. now I've got a bank of notes that I can look back at tough times and see what I was feeling then and go, oh yeah, I'm feeling that. Yeah, okay. It's tough at the moment, but I'm sure it'll, I'm sure there are things I can do outside of this that will turn it around. That'll, it'll turn around itself or I'll just keep plodding along and do what I need to do because right. I'm, I'm confident that I am and uh, I read a the, I, can't remember, I think it's called The Book of Five Rings about you know Japanese 
um, philosophy. And they develop what's called the way. And the way is that you are certain that the things you're doing are the things you should be doing, mm. regardless of outcome. And I think we're always thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Mm. And when you do that, you end up not doing anything. Mm. And so just going, look, I've, well, I, today I'm a good dad and I'm a good husband and I do my job well. It's been a good day. Yeah, it was just this sense of euphoria and amazement um, that I'd really managed to defy anything that I thought was possible to to win. And then I I realised when I crossed that uh, I had this most fast, fantastic opportunity and this amazing platform to represent our sport and to represent issues that I care about being for me for me being world champion was just a life changer because having worked in international development you want to be in a position to influence and to drive change and to speak about the things that you care about and to make people listen and you know triathlon and and my achievements in triathlon gave me that if you were able to transmit a message to others yeah. about how how we all work. What would yeah. be one of your sort of key lessons that you'd want to share about how we all work, live, perform? I think uh, no matter who you are and where you work and what you do, I think it's important to try and try and find a thing that gives you purpose and gives you gives you passion. Um, we've all been through phases of your working life or whatever where you're like, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. Mm. Uh, I think. Working with sports men and women who are at a very high level, they, the thing I've learned is they know 100% why they're doing what they're doing, mm. how they got into it, why they're here, why they're killing themselves, and they'll enjoy the highs and they'll, you know, the lows will happen. And I think it's the same for anyone, no matter what they do. It's like, just harps back to that, um, finding the purpose, your why, whatever it might be, and then enjoying it, being comfortable with where you're at, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. Because it's just part of the journey. So, over a long, distinguished career, Vern, and, and um, what are you still now passionate about and championing looking forward? Well, uh, I'm pa- passionate right now about getting better at getting better. I want to get better myself, and I want to help coaches. I'm more interested in how people learn and how we can be more effective, as I said earlier, of, of getting more out of that time without, you know, without taking the fun aspect of it away. And um, I think it's there and I think it's just it's going to be drawing on different people in different fields, mm. you know, and, and having to look at what we do differently. Last week, the psychologist Adam Grant tweeted, The ultimate purpose of thought leadership is not to provide definitive answers, but to spark dialogue. Great thinkers start new conversations on topics that are important but neglected and rejuvenate old conversations that have been stored or forgotten. Thank you, Adam, for that inspiration. And I truly hope that you've been sparked to think differently as a consequence of these discussions. I'm duty bound, though, to ask you, so what? What is it that you'll be doing differently as a consequence of the ideas that you've heard through the podcast? 
And so to wrap up, I just want to say a big thank you to all the guests who have been on the show. Having spent the last week listening back, there are so many insights to be had. So if you haven't had chance, then I'd encourage you to have a look back and cherry pick one of the episodes or some of the recordings from the conference in 2017. Looking ahead for the podcast, we've got lined up Dame Catherine Granger, Brad Dieter, Joe Eisenman, all ready to go in 2019. Thanks so much also to the Supporting Champions team and our close associates, to Rachel for driving the Supporting Champions business, Sam Porter, Jamie Pringle, Rosie Mays, Fee Barnes, Andy Orford, Georgia Hickman, Kelly Pritchard-Peshek, Ollie Parsons, Luke Gupta and so many more for all your amazing work, ideas and inspiration. Thank you also to the podcasting legends in Michael Gervais, Ollie Mann, Matt Hill, Julian Illman and Catherine Bryant for your generous advice and support. But a big thanks to you all for tuning in and engaging with us. If we've worked with you this year, uh, whether it's been speeches, workshops, if you've come to the conference or anything else, then thank you. It's been an absolute privilege and we're looking forward to so much more in 2019. So we're continuing to deliver the Spotlight Performance Mindset tool in with teams and individuals. All is left for me to wish you a wonderful festive period. I hope you're able to connect with people and principles that you really care for and hope you're able to come back refreshed, ready to pursue your ambitions with renewed energy in 2019.